This was a great interview. I had a lot of fun connecting with an old friend of mine, a teacher in an elementary school. She teaches fifth grade. She's been in the game for as long as I have, actually. And we talked about all things education. We discussed homework in elementary schools. We discussed tests and test scores. And we also discussed the role that identity plays in teaching and learning in the classroom. So give it a listen and let me know what you think. You can reach out to me at turnandtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome to the Turn and Talk podcast where educators take the mic back and speak their truth without filter. I interview teachers and school personnel and ask them to share their views and experiences about education anonymously. If you work in a school setting or have worked in one and have something to say about education, please email me at turnandtalkpodcast at gmail.com because I'd love for you to take the mic back and add your voice to the conversation about public education. Subscribe, share, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Uh, I have an old friend of mine here today. She is an elementary school teacher, and let's hear from her. Uh, Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm good. We always start with how people ended up in the classroom as teachers. So can you tell us a little about the journey you took to come to the classroom? Yeah, so I never thought I would be a teacher ever. It wasn't something, a profession that ever crossed my mind. Um, When I was in college or high school, I wanted to go into the corporate world. I wanted to do something creative. I thought about going into advertising, but I ended up with a communications degree and didn't know what to do. And I went from job to job. I worked for Johnson and Johnson for a little bit and then AIG because a friend got me a job. And then I actually met you, Jay. (laughs) um, You had decided (laughs) to go into teaching and it intrigued me because I was very unhappy with what I was doing, servicing people's insurance needs and all. So I decided to follow suit and interview for the New York City Teaching Fellows. And it was, I was just having a good time. And everything I learned that summer through the six-week course was so interesting and fulfilling. And then it got really challenging once they put me in the classroom. But um, I stuck it out, and I'm glad I did, because I can't see myself doing anything else. No, this is it. This is what I, this is my passion. Wow, so it's safe to say that you kind of stumbled upon teaching, really? Absolutely, yep. Yeah, not a lot of teachers have that kind of a story. A lot of teachers say, you know, always wanted to be a teacher, used to play teacher in school as a kid and uh, became a teacher. What what did you think about it? Because you took the alternate route, uh, also the New York City Teaching Fellows Program, which is one of those alternate route programs that tries to put teachers in places where teachers are needed, typically urban settings. Mm -hmm. How was that experience for for you? It was an awesome experience. I met so many different people from different walks of life, different professions, and we did a lot of collaborative work in the classrooms, you know, during that six-week course and over the next two years when we were getting our master's, just having classes with some, you know, some of the same people. Um, and it, you realize that we all bring such different things to the table. Just within our conversations about, about the, the lectures and the readings that we were doing, and at first I was like, what is this? It just seems like a hot mess of people who don't know what they want to do. And then you realize and it actually, I feel the same way now, ha- having worked with teachers from from different backgrounds, that they have a different perspective they bring to the classroom. And I think that's what teaching is missing sometimes, you know, that just develop, like, all-around view of the real world and not just what's happening in your classroom that day. Sometimes I feel like that's missing. We get so caught up in the day-to-day, but 
it's nice to see, like, it's nice to understand the bigger picture, what else lies outside of the school. And, and when you have experience out there, you know a little bit better about that, you look, know a little bit more about it. So I, I think it was an awesome experience. My professors were great. I went to college and I got assigned to school in Brooklyn. And um, I, I don't know, I just really loved everything I was learning. They really get deep into the, like, the psychological level of education too. And that's so important. Um, so yeah, I don't know what I missed out on though. So I have nothing to compare it to, but my experience was really great in terms and, of the alternate route. And, and did you feel like you were sufficiently prepared in the short period of time uh, that you did receive some pedagogical instruction? Uh, so no, I don't think I, you could, I don't think you could ever be prepared. My first two years of teaching were really rough, but I don't think that, that anybody's prepared, even if they go the traditional route. Once you get into the classroom, it takes years to feel like you are prepared. You know, it just, I don't know if anything prepare you except, and not even student teaching, because you don't really have control over the class. You're still, somebody else is doing a majority of the heavy lifting until it's really put on you and you work through it and you struggle through it. You know, that productive struggle we talk about, that's a real thing. So I don't, I don't think it prepared me in that sense, but, um, but it gave me some strategies. I had some things to fall back on. I wasn't starting from nothing, you know? So that was, it was helpful. And that's, and I had a network of people, which is so important. I'm still in touch with some of them now. And that was helpful when you're going through your tough times, you have people to lean on, you know, for help, supervisors and and peers. Did you feel your degree in communications came in handy in any way in the classroom? Um, hmm, That's a good question. I never thought about that. I feel like my college education in general helped me. There are so many different courses I took. My psychology, I minored in psychology. Those courses helped. And just understanding people, their emotions, the brain, building empathy, I guess. Um, so in a way, yes, I feel like it, it did help me. I just, I don't know. I never thought about this before. Um, and then I took a course on public speaking in, in college because I was so shy. That definitely helped me. <laughs> so I think, mm-hmm. so I think, yes, it did um, in some ways. But again, to get me super prepared for teaching, no, just adding to my bank of knowledge, I guess, in general. Yeah. And as someone who came into uh, the profession without having always planned to do so, how did you end up in the elementary grade band? So that's a good question. So um, because I never thought about working with kids before, the idea of working with older kids kind of made me nervous. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, like literally, I just thought it'd be easier to start off in elementary um, I don't think it's easier in any grade level now that I know better. <laughs> they each come with their own hardships and just, you know, challenges. So um, that was my reason for going elementary. And I also thought, oh, it's easy. I can teach first graders how to read and add. And okay, I don't need to know a lot of content. And and yeah, so that was my reasoning just because I had no idea what I was getting myself into that to start in elementary would be easiest. And what are the different elementary level grades did you teach so far? Okay, so I taught first my first year. It was actually the school that I, so first I got assigned to a school because I didn't find a job within that time period. So they just assigned me to a school and that school couldn't hire me. So I just helped out. I went to different classes. And then I finally in October of 2008 got assigned to a a school and it was a first grade classroom where this was really bizarre. They were Mm -hmm. They, they had taken a bunch of kids who failed first grade and instead of moving them on to second grade, they put them all in one class in first grade. Hmm. And this was in October. So they, and then they wanted their teacher who was a veteran teacher 
they wanted to pull her out and put her in an administrative role. So they wanted me to transition into her room, uh, you know, and be the classroom teacher. But she was still in the classroom for political reasons. She couldn't leave yet or whatever it was. I don't remember what it was. And so we were in there together and she was very adamant about me not, uh, this not being my class and until the day she walks out of the classroom. So I was, wow. just, I was just watching and observing and trying to learn until um, I took over that class. And then the next that the next the following year that school didn't have any room for me so I got I had to look again but the first school I got put in just to kind of float around had said oh we, we need a teacher now so I went back to that principal you know she, she offered me a job so I was in that school in Brighton Beach and I thought they said oh it's fine you'll go from first grade to second grade but then right before school started they said it's going to be fourth grade so I was a little scared I was like oh my god how do I do this what a big jump I have no idea what I'm doing so my first year as a fourth grade teacher was also difficult. It was a really tough class. Um, I had a student who literally pretended to fall asleep every time I taught. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so that, that was really challenging. And then I, w I stayed in that school for five years. So and with every year that passed, it got better and better. And then that school was, um, was tiered. So eventually the principal, I guess, after a few observations, like what she saw and she she made me the classroom teacher for the, um, the higher tiered students. So I was used to mm -hmm. that, teaching those students for three to four years. So that was another challenge because you had to figure out ways to challenge students and, you know, and like engage them because they know everything. They're very bright. So, and then I had my daughter, took a year off, came back to work in that same capacity, fourth grade teacher in the higher, you know, level classroom. And then I was like, this is, uh, we had moved to Jersey by then. So then I moved. I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I got a job in New Jersey and I taught fifth grade. So this is my fifth year teaching fifth grade now. So yeah, first, fourth, oh, wow. and fifth. Wow, that's, that's a bit of yeah. uh, diverse experience at school. Yeah. And, and so let's talk about retention real, uh, real quick. Do you th mm -hmm. think retaining children in, in a grade when they allegedly fail the year is um, beneficial? Okay, so I can only speak from my experience on the elementary level, but my philosophy on teaching in the elementary level is that these are years that are impressionable on kids, right? They're still trying to figure out who they are and becoming who they are. And so the most important thing at this level in the elementary level is instilling a love of learning, period. And a love for reading, a love for math, a love for writing, a love, just curiosity. And, and, and that in itself will set the stage for them wanting to learn and attend school and you know, just, it's so hard to, to teach that if they don't naturally have that, you know, oh, I'm so curious, I want to know more. And some of them, they're just, you don't know what their situations are and what they're coming from. So there's a lot of work to be done sometimes in terms of support. And so I just think on the elementary level, those harsh punishments, like pulling, you know, like keeping kids back and it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. But at the same time, I'm not really sure how to close that gap up like for certain situations especially when kids come up from out of the country which in our school we have a lot of kids that come from out of the country it is helpful I had a student last year who had the wrong birthday and he was the youngest kid in my class and was struggling so he shouldn't even have been placed in my class in the first place they held him back so he was in the right group he was, mm -hmm. he was with his peers and he also got a second dose of you know what everybody else got so in that case it was helpful but um, overall, I don't, I don't 
believe it is, um, it's really detrimental to their self-esteem. It makes them feel inadequate and just plain stupid and they're not dumb, they're, they're kid, they understand what's going on. So, so no, I just think everything else should be done before that it ever comes to that. On the, in the middle school and high school level, I don't know, I can't really speak for, for that, but I imagine it makes kids feel the same way, you know, just not adequate. And a lot of times, like, it's not their, their fault that they didn't understand. I think that responsibility, I mean, it, should, it does, but it also should fall on the teachers and all the other adults that are supposed to support the student because the student will be able to learn. They're just not learning in that particular way, you know? So, yeah, I think what yeah. you said about the retention being a punishment is is an idea worth thinking more about because we should be thinking more about what the purpose of the retention is. If the retention is an option that's on the table, oftentimes schools would claim that retention is an intervention, right? It's uh, the reason why we are asking a child or placing a child back in the grade that or having them repeat it is because they did not show mastery or proficiency of the things mm-hmm. that they were supposed to learn. So mm-hmm. it, it would make sense that they would need more time with that stuff and they should then master it, hopefully. But oftentimes, if nothing else changes, then it doesn't work as an intervention, right? So, if, Absolutely. you know, if it's yeah. if you're repeating the same stuff the same way right. and nothing else changes except your the child's age, it's not necessarily going to work at all. It's not at all effective in the in the upper grades anyway. Right. No, absolutely. And I think it depends on a case by case situation where you got to look at the bigger picture. And a close friend of mine actually said that when he was in elementary school. Um, the teacher wanted to hold him back. He had just moved from another country and his English, I guess, wasn't, you know, up to so great. And he wasn't showing um, under, that he was understanding what was, you know, the, the concepts that were being taught. So there were talks about him being held back. And luckily he didn't have to get held back. I guess the parents didn't support that decision. And he works for JP Morgan and he's totally fine. <laughs> it's like, what, you know, like you don't, you don't know if that's just a temporary transition or a tough year, whatever the circumstances are that are going on in their personal life that might be. And I think with enough support and time, they can, you know, um, catch up or, you know, even exceed expectations. It's just a case by case situation. Sometimes it's not as easy as, oh, repeat the grade. That's almost like saying, it, it was all the kids felt like they just didn't get it but the second time around you know and that's not always the case like you said so there's so many other things that factor in to why a kid is not performing on grade level definitely there's so many things that factor in a student's achievement period at any grade <laughs> level you've been talking a little bit about children who are speakers of languages other than english and it's making me think about identity in the classroom do you think identity affects teaching and learning in the Absolutely. elementary schools? Both, 100% it affects both. And it can be limiting, and it can also be this eye-opening experience where you share and learn from each other because of how different you know, and how diverse you are. So identity is a really big part of um, the first unit that I cover in my class. And just so I teach um, weeks of fiction and weeks of nonfiction. I'm an ELA teacher right now, currently only teach reading and writing to fifth grade students. So we start off our first essential question for the year is what is identity and why is it important? And then our follow-up to that is um, how can misconceptions about identity be harmful? And that's the question that I really want them to understand when we're talking about, yeah, when we're talking about our social studies curriculum and how you know Europeans came over, the identities of the Native Americans, the identity of the Europeans, the identities of the Africans and how those three 
groups of people had misconceptions about one another and what harm it did and who was harmed by those misconceptions. So, but I also want them to then relate it to stories we read in, in our fictional unit of study and characters we come across. And then I also want them to relate to it themselves, right? And the real world. And so as a teacher, I feel like I'm constantly thinking about this because I am a minority in my school and there's not very many minority teachers in my school, yet the majority of students are minorities. And so there is this big disparity. There's this gap. There's this lack of understanding for each other. You know, why are these kids going to India in the middle of the year for weeks at a time? Well, there's a really important um, family member who's ill and it's important in their culture to see this, you know, whatever the reason might be or a wedding and mm-hmm. whatever the reason might be. It's just, I get it. You're, they're missing school and it's a problem. This is one example, but there's a lot of lack of understanding and a lot of judgment because of these misconceptions about identity and how you know, it's, this is what it means to be American and go to an American school. And those misconceptions are being held by the teachers who, that's really sad to me because you are somebody that these kids look up to and they want to be understood by you more than anybody else. And I think sometimes it's so much more about, I got to teach this. I got to cover this. I got to get through this. I got to assess them. I got to grade this. And like, no, these are your students. You are doing so much more. You are teaching them so much more than just reading and writing and math and science. Like identity plays a huge role in it. I feel like it plays a role in whether or not like they, the kids feel respected, the teacher feels respected because there's so many misunderstandings about, you know, this kid wouldn't look at me in my eyes when he spoke to me. That might be a cultural thing. That might be a part of their identity where you don't look up at your adult whenever an adult is talking to you. You look down. So there's so many examples. I'm only thinking of a couple of a few different ones that were like identity plays a huge role in why things are happening the way they are, why kids are understanding concepts the way they are, why interactions happen the way they do. And so if we don't take a moment to pause and really check ourselves and, you know, checking with the students and dig a little bit deeper, it can lead to a lot of harm, a lot of misconceptions, a lot of like, oh, that's a troubled kid. He's a bad, you know, like these ideas that aren't necessarily true. We just think that because we are unfamiliar and haven't taken the moment time to really think about identity even just thinking about identity even just questioning be like could they be doing this because of could could this could I be thinking this because of my you know those questions help you at least hit the pause button for a little bit um, and reassess the situation so yeah I absolutely think identity has a lot to do with what you teach how you teach it your interaction with the students you know you present history and politics and current events your identity what you believe you know what you're for is that's how you're going to present um, content to your kids and ideas to your kids, you know? And I don't know, for me, I feel like before I send them off to, to middle school, I don't want to tell them what to think and what to believe. I think you can Google all that stuff and figure out, you know, like, but like, I want to teach them how to think, how to analyze, how to really handle information overload. Like, what do you do and how do you sift through information, realize like what, aligns with your own beliefs what are your beliefs so identity is a really big part of our first beginning of the school you're just establishing who you are what do you stand for what do you believe you know and and make sure that they feel proud of it because if they don't then anybody can come around and make them feel insignificant you know yeah this certainly sounds like a challenge that teachers face right and what are some other challenges that you feel like teachers face or any frustrations that are related to the profession of teaching right now and from your experience yeah so i 
I think most people want to form connections with their students and take identity into consideration all that. It's just how much time do you have in a day and how much energy do you have to devote to the most important, what they deem to be the most important things that need to be taken care of. So, so yeah, I, so there's lots of, there's lots of struggles. So the number of students in our class, classes and in my school in particular, we're overflowing and it's hard to give students one-on-one -on -one time, you know, to even get to the point where you're trying to understand a student formal relationship. Like I have to really make a conscious effort to say hello to every single one of my 54 students. You know, I don't have them all at the same time. I'm 27 at, at once, but um, like I really have to make it a point to greet them every day to make sure they had some sort of interaction with me one-on-one, -on -one, you know? Mm -hmm. It's hard when your class sizes are 20s, 30s, late, I mean, sorry, upper 20s and mid-30s. It's how do you give a child any attention at all that's, one, that's meaningful and deep besides just talking to the class and, you know, so and rushing through things to make sure you get through things. So that that is definitely a big struggle. We are we have overflowing classrooms, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't really know what the solution for that is in our district. Um, we're still working on that. <laughs> but um, um, another struggle, just I think the amount of um, things we're responsible for versus the amount of time we have. So like you know, we have families or some teachers are you know, thinking about starting families and they're new and there's so much to figure out and like I know for myself, I held off on having kids as, you know, even though I was married. And so all of these things factor in, like how we, there's a lot of work to do just to keep up on a day to day. And so finding that work-life balance, and I think just having time to do it all one period a day, which is a quick, like 40 minutes, it flies by if even that, mm -hmm. as you're working through lunch. So time is another thing. It's just, there's more to do than there is enough time. So you end up taking work home and then you have husband spouse and kids who want your time as well especially since you've all been apart from each other all day so that that's that's really hard and I'm still learning how to balance it this year I'm better <laughs> at not taking work home but then I feel like oh my god I have to spend one day at least a month just catching up on all my stuff that I'm feel like I'm falling behind on so um that's another thing I think I used another issue that I've dealt with but thankfully that it's no longer an issue anymore is this lack of understanding and respect between your administration and the teachers. So I've worked for a really tough principal in the past where just kind of like shame you in front of everybody, mm -hmm. you know, and that was hard. It kind of takes your drive away and makes you forget why you are doing what you're doing and it just consumes you and you have a lot of anxiety and just, every, you question everything. You no longer feel good about what you're doing in the mm -hmm. classroom. You don't even feel like you're making a difference because you're being told, you're not making a difference. So I think that's another struggle that a lot of educators educators deal with. And yeah. it's that because I'm definitely in a healthier place and I'm lucky I have the supportive administration that I do. And but I was in a very toxic environment before. So that I feel for those teachers because that makes a world of a difference. You know, if somebody tells you every day they believe in you, you start to believe in yourself too and you start to make magic happen, you know? So um let's see, should I go on or <laughs> <Should> I... <laughs> No, no, we we can move on to the next thing because I'm thinking about um you know, the, what you're describing, it sounds like things are not exactly maybe people imagine them to be when they're entering teaching. So I wanna ask you, how has your impression of the work of a teacher changed if at all you know given your own schooling when you were a kid mm -hmm. uh, and thinking about teaching now as a teacher yourself 
Yeah. Uh, how has your understanding of teaching changed, if at all? Is it so what you thought it was going to be like? No, absolutely not. I had no idea. And <laughs> when I thought about when I was starting, you know, going through the training and all that, and I thought about what it was like for me. I never had a teacher I connected with ever, ever. Like I'm trying to think of just one teacher that I felt like, oh yeah, that teacher got me. Never. I've had some nice teachers, I've had some mean teachers, but mm. never a teacher that I felt like, oh, this teacher gets me. I could go to this teacher for help. So mm-hmm. that has shaped my teaching a lot. I feel like when I was growing up, teaching looked easy. I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> it just seemed like we were having more fun. A lot of I people remember, think that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember having a lot of fun in elementary school. Like my kindergarten teacher, we had a piano in the classroom. And I don't know if kindergartners are having the same kind of fun, but um, <laughs> it just seems harder on this side of it. It seems hard. Um, like there's so many more roles and I feel like when we were younger it's like oh yeah we're going to school okay we learn we do these things have a little fun go home it just seems so fun and light and not so serious and on this side of it it seems much more serious definitely a heavier task there's always so much to do and think about and it almost feels like there's lives that depend on you in some ways you know yeah you you feel so guilty taking a day off Oh yeah, for sure. You said it's it's different uh, or it feels more challenging or difficult from this side. Do you think it's also difficult or challenging for kids more so now than it was before? I think so. The standards have changed and the things that kindergartners are required to do versus when we were in school, it's so much more. And a lot of places they don't have full day kindergarten still, but yet they have the same standards. So the fact that my daughter had to learn how to read in pre-K in kindergarten, and then if she's not reading by kindergarten first grade she's below grade level it's crazy to me you know like yeah. um we learned how to read in first grade i feel like that's when <laughs> really, you know and we did comprehension task cards and stuff like that in second and third but these just the testing that they have to do in third or you know from third on it's it causes a lot of anxiety so i think it's i think they the, the kids they, they definitely have a lot have it a lot harder in terms of their workload and what they're responsible for mastering before they move on to the next grade level but at the same time, I do think that just being born to the time period that they're being born, teachers are more innovative. And so we're also able to offer them more opportunities to be creative, more opportunities for choice and thinking outside of the box. So, yeah, in some ways it's more challenging. In some ways it's not as rigid, depending on who the educator is and what, you know, all that, like where, where they go to school. But I mm-hmm. think there's a push to to be more innovative in the classroom and these kids get to benefit from that yeah. with regards to testing uh, i mean if this is a personal question you don't have to answer it at all i'll just cut this out but um with regards to testing is your daughter a testing age right now and if so or when she gets to that age if not yet then are you planning on uh, allowing her to participate in the standard testing okay so she's not a testing age yet but she will be in two years and for right now her diagnostic exams and all that indicate that she's like either on grade level or above. So it's not a concern and she doesn't really get what they call, you know, she doesn't get test anxiety or anything like that. Um, I don't even think she realizes right now that that she's taking a test is really important. So, um, but I think if it ever became an issue where she was feeling nervous or bad or sick over it, you know, or she wasn't a good test taker for whatever reason, I wouldn't feel the need my husband or I would feel the need to make her take the test, you know, I just, yeah, I don't know. So then why would you let her take it to begin with? Like what, what information do you think you were going to get out of it? 
see, yeah, that's the thing. Like, I think if it's something that's no big deal and it's just a day where she's taking a test, it's totally fine. And it's like, okay, good. You did great on this test one day or whatever. You did okay. But I, I'm not against it either. If it's a school thing, I, I just don't, I think if it's a problem, I don't think she would need to take it. I'm, I'm not anti-test. I just think when it's high stakes, when everything depends on this score, that's when we have a problem. But mm-hmm. if she doesn't realize that and it's not getting in the way of her, you know, just feeling good about herself, she can take the test. What is it? Just sitting there for, you know, until she's done. <laughs> I, I don't mind her doing that as long as she's, you know, but I yeah. think when it's a problem and it's like, her whole life is about this one test that's not okay i I don't like and i'm anti-state testing as it is it's one day how accurate can it be or two days whatever it is and it's not indicative in any way of what this child is capable of um Mm -hmm. but this is the reality we live in and as teachers we have to administer these tests and as parents we send them to school and they take these tests so i don't i don't know like so yeah she can take the test i don't think we have anything against it unless there's some issues with mm-hmm. her taking the test, and we would not, absolutely not feel the need to, you know. But I don't know if I'm one of those parents that's like, no, my child can never take. I don't know. I just don't. Maybe, maybe because I'm not there yet, and we're still two years away. But mm-hmm. um, well, I have to say, I'm I am a bit jealous because you're an elementary school teacher, and <laughs> your kids are in elementary school, and you probably are able to help them better with their homework because when I look at this homework oh yeah and I, I can't uh, especially I especially the math homework I'm just I know I lose well, my mind over it yeah well I can help out with that if you want. <laughs> <laughs> thank it you is. it's, it's just so frustrating like, the idea of it makes sense right you want kids to be yes. so good at understanding math and numbers that they should be able to tackle it from any angle but the fact that every child has to try out each and every angle and this it's just that it's like they have to learn it and then the parents have to learn it and how do they get that happen i get it it's frustrating i get i know how to do it and i'm still frustrated <laughs> yeah you know i think it, it's had that uh, i i clearly see it in my experience it's had you know this new common core based math stuff and i'm not anti-common core at all i teach it i like it I, I like it better than the old standard used to have for reading and writing in a lot of ways and so i'm, I'm all for that but how it's translated into you know, just bumping everything up a level or two levels, like that just feels ridiculous to me. But the homework that I see, like I'm seeing my daughter starting to hate math and yeah. it's solely because of the homework. So, um, so like I see very clearly, like if somebody says to me that Common Core has made kids smarter or something like that, I give you a non-example from my direct mm-hmm. experience. That is not true at all. Right. Um, it may be true for some kids, maybe, I don't know but they were probably already going to be good at math. <laughs> but, right. but the way I'm seeing it from my perspective yeah. over the past three years, the, you know, just the kind of math that kids are learning there, it's not fun at all for my daughter. Yeah, I agree. It's hard. I don't teach math right now, but my fifth graders, we have a period where it's almost like a provide support for any subject area. So I try to provide them support with math if they need it in that period. And, um, I have to learn it myself over again before I can teach it to them. It's very complicated. And so I can't even believe that they're doing this. Like I never learned this before when I was their age. And so you ask yourself, like, is it developmentally appropriate to require a child to learn this right now? Or are we just saying it is like, what's the standard based on like, can't they be exposed to it? But then if it doesn't stick, whatever way sticks, that's, they should just be assessed on the concept itself, but that, not how you're tackling the concept. You know, it's just, 
at that point yeah. when you're doing the assessment, it should be what works best for you, you know? I don't yeah. know. And developmental appropriateness is also very subjective, right? A thing can be developmentally appropriate, but still not ethically appropriate, right? Like right. you, you right. can have um, in, in another country, in a lot of countries where, you know, child labor exists, right. kids are working in brick kilns and, and you know, baking bricks. That Absolutely. developmentally, that's appropriate. It's actually beneficial if the body is small and hands are small to be able to work through bricks. Right. But it's not ethically still right because it's torturous. Right. I absolutely <laughs> agree. There's so much to consider. And I'm also for the Common Core Standards. I'm, you know, I think it forces teachers to also dig deeper than we ever were able to before, ever thought to before. I just think some of the requirements where it's like we have to assess to make sure children can do it this way, though. And but it's like, why? Yeah. I think I think we just are not, uh, perhaps some of us are. Some of, uh, my impression is that we're just not doing enough of the cost analysis of it. Like, what's the, what are the costs? Perhaps if we took a, uh, an honest look at some of the costs, such as, you know, reading went through the same phase for a while, right? Kids, yeah. we focused on strategies a lot, and it made reading boring and torturous for a lot of kids. And right. reading, the joy kind of got out of reading. And now reading is painful for a lot of children because the kind of stuff they have, they have to learn main idea from first grade to 12th grade. <laughs> like right. exactly. They have to learn the same dang thing um, every year. And math is now almost becoming like the same thing where yeah. like the joy is getting out of it. And it's mostly about just, yeah. you know, all oh, ways cool. of doing things. For a long time, my kids loved math way more than reading. And now I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, my daughter's definitely over over it. She's she's actually unfortunately she's I think sometimes she just says it to get attention, but she and maybe she knows it ticks me off, so she says it on purpose, but she's started to say like I'm not good at math. And I'm like what do you mean? You're you're doing fine. Like why who said that? And why are you saying that? And it makes me so angry, but like for some reason she's starting to say that. Which and, goes back to my point where elementary school more than anything else should be setting these kids up to want to learn, to want to, to be, feel good about learning. Right. Like exactly. That's the cost that, we should not be willing to just exactly. pay, you know, exactly. The yeah. Uh, well, last question then I know our time is also running out and you got to get home and so do I. <laughs> so uh, real quick, a lot of people, you know, kind of related to this conversation of testing. A lot of people seem to think that our Read, kids in reading aren't making enough growth our kids in math aren't uh making enough growth writing especially they're not making enough growth when you look at the NAEP tests and PISA etc do you think something's wrong with with our schools or the way we're doing the way we teach or the way our kids are learning and the way our schools are set up or do you think everything is fine we just need to keep doing it yeah so this is our question answer because like, I feel like we, we hear all the time that other countries are ahead of us there's other countries that are ahead of us ahead of us and I feel like a lot of them still learn in the rote, like the old school way, you know, yep. and we are more modern in that sense and innovative, I feel. And so I don't know what, what the reason is for why we're behind, quote unquote, but I think I can only speak for the elementary level. I think, I don't know about keep doing what we're doing, but keep challenging ourselves to help children to want to read and want to math and to, to do math and want to do, to write, you know, now I'm like, Seeing like I don't know, what I mean. <laughs> like so. So I think that's number one because if they're mm -hmm. not into it, we can't help them grow as much, right? So, and then number two, like sometimes, and certain teachers feel like I've always done it this way, and so we continue to 
do it that way, but there's so much new stuff out there that makes teaching and learning actually fun, like writing, right? I've been studying um, Jen Saravalo's work, and mm -hmm. it makes me so excited to teach writing again. And I, I took a workshop where I was like, I was a student, and I was like, this is so much fun. And mm -hmm. I feel like when you get stuck on the road, like this is this, this is these are the steps, this is a procedure, this is how we write an essay, this is how we write a story. It gets so boring. And mm -hmm. if you don't speak to their hearts or connect it to something kids are interested to, it's just kind of a fact that's floating around in the air and not they're not grasping it. It's not connecting to their schema. It's not connecting to their heart where they actually care about it. So I think if you're not already doing that, which I think a lot of educators are doing that actually nowadays, um, that's a way to change it. And then, but it's inconsistent, right? I don't think these kids have teachers year after year who are doing that either. You get a teacher who's really into making learning more fun and um, engaging or you don't. So consistency is lacking in, I, I think, in that area. We're not all doing so. Yeah, and that goes back to identity too. Like, who are you as a teacher? What do you think is more important? And how do you deliver your lessons? And are they delivered in a way that, like what's more important to you? What you're teaching, like what you're saying to them or how you're saying it, are they connecting to it? So I, I think the lack of consistency also, but. It's hard to make a lot of growth in these subject areas in one school year. It takes a lot of consistency year after year to have yeah. really grow. So when you have different teachers every year and, and then, you know, you know, the teaching styles and the kids' learning styles and add it on to everything else, it's hard to, I don't know. And then, and then it's hard to pinpoint like what we're doing wrong. It's, it's more of an overall thing, you know? Yeah. So yeah. if you could uh, wave a magic wand to strengthen teaching and learning overnight, what would you do? Oh man, that's a heavy question. Um, <laughs> okay. Change teaching and learning overnight. So I think the biggest thing is um, encouraging teachers to build relationships with their students because that's the start of everything, right? You yeah. build a relationship with a student and then their ears are open to whatever you have to say. Their hearts are open to whatever you have to say. So I don't know. That's just on a personal level, just like, I guess building wide type of thing, but overall teaching, I don't know. Let's see. I have no idea, Jay. This is a heavy question. <laughs> oh, okay. So I think the assessments, because if we could teach, I get why they're important, but they're so high stakes that sometimes you're rushing through just curriculum and trying to teach it. But if that burden was taken off from the teachers, I think we could teach in a much more meaningful way. And I'm not saying everybody would be like, oh, we don't have to test them. So why bother teaching? But I don't know, you'd be surprised. I think without that, we might actually help kids grow. We have more time, we have, you know, more flexibility. It's not just, what if they fail the test? It's, I don't know, I just, it kind of puts a strain on learning, teaching and learning sometimes. So, yeah. yeah. I wish I could come up with a better answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> I like that answer. Uh, well, thank you so much. I think this is okay. it. I appreciate your time. It was so good to connect with you again. You too. You too. And that's all for today's episode, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Turn and Talk Podcast is your one-stop shop for learning about what is actually happening in schools today directly from the people who are working in today's schools. The support for this podcast comes from listeners like yourself, people who are interested in the present and the future of education. So feel free to head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Podcast. We invite you to also follow us on Instagram at turnandtalkpodcast. 
if you haven't subscribed yet please go ahead and do that too so that all future episodes are available to you upon release and downloaded immediately to your device if you have questions thought feedback or if you work in a school and would like to take the mic back please please email us at turn and talk podcast at gmail.com thank you for tuning in this is your host jay mcsuits signing out peace